All right, well, good morning. It's good to see I love you. Happy New Year and Merry Ninth Day of Christmas. Um, I know not a lot of us celebrate that, but the Christmas season actually will conclude on Wednesday with the Epiphany, um, which in many denominations and many traditions, they celebrate all 12 days of Christmas. The Epiphany is when uh, Christ made um, uh, was manifested to the Gentiles for the first time as the, the Magi came you know, from Orient Art traveling over fields and fountain moors and mountains following yonder stars. So that's what the 12 days of Christmas is all about. It's not about lords leaping and ladies dancing, which is already a little weird. We're on nine late. I mean, I'm not sure what the writer was after with all that, but um, here uh, in the States, we really just kind of skip straight to New Year's. And um, New Year's is a gift. Like, having a, a chance to hit kind of a restart, a have a new, fresh start and, and a chance to sit down and analyze kind of the way things went down uh, the previous year and look forward to the coming new year and to, to set some goals, to talk about some dreams and some prayers and some hopes. And so um, Sarah and I yesterday actually took some pens and some paper and, and talked about some things that we want to see in our family over the next year, um, you know, like writing a mission statement for our family, developing some core values that our family are going to be, you know, try to be shaped by and that are near and dear to our family, uh, trying to shift our sleeping pattern, which is especially over this time when the kids have been out, has shifted way late and late in the morning as well, and we want to shift that way back early, go to bed much earlier so that we can get up much earlier and have more time to spend in prayer and in the Word before the kids ever get up. And on and on we could go with these goals and stuff that we want to set, but the new year brings new opportunities. It's a chance for a fresh start. It's a chance to hit reset and, and, and yeah, take stock of the year just completed and look forward to the year to come. And so let me just encourage you, whether you're into, you know, writing down resolutions um, not that it was a New Year's resolution, but, but Jonathan Edwards once wrote 70 things that he resolved to do, which are just amazing. I encourage you to Google that, read that. It'll be good for your soul. So whether you're into writing down resolutions or just kind of thinking through some things, let me implore you to take advantage of this new year to put into practice, if you haven't already, the spiritual disciplines that we talked about in November and December. It's the first one, and the most important one being the intake of the Word. Getting into the Bible. It's a fresh year. And get, get started on that. Prayer and fasting. Continual repentance. Just a discipline of continually repenting. Having family devotions. Of stewarding our resources as well of evangelism, these spiritual disciplines, take advantage of this new time, not so that, and as we talked about in this series, not so we can say, all right, well, I had my quiet time this morning, me and God must be good, because I had my quiet time, so he's going to be good to me this day, not, not for that pur purpose at all, because the, the, the truth is only Christ makes you good with God, not your actions, right, what, what he did, not what you do, so, but, but take advantage of this time to pursue the spiritual discipline not as an end in themselves, 
but as a means to an end. The end of growing in godliness. Becoming more Christ-like. And so that's a prayer of mine for every single one of us in this congregation that in 2016, we would be more Christ-like by the end than we are right now. That we would live like Him, love like Him, forgive like Him, shed grace like Him. And so 1 Timothy 4.8 says we've got to train ourselves for godliness. And so that is my prayer, that we would truly become a grace a graceful people, a grace-filled people. And so take advantage of this new year, this new start, this new opportunity, which because of Christ is brimming with hope. Brimming with hope. I mean, just think, Jesus is Lord. So the future is bright. He's on the throne, right? He's good, and so let's do this. There's, there's hope, there's, there's, there's joy to be pursued and hope to be laid hold of. And so let's go to work at that this year, personally and corporately as a church. And so when, like, when we pull up to the corporate level, I mean, that is like what we're all about. We're, we're all about, like corporately, this collection of brothers and sisters here known as Providence. We exist to worship and enjoy God and lead others to do the same. And if that's not what we're going to be about, then let's sell the property. There's there's lots of other good churches in Nolensville. So if we're not going to be about the main thing, if we're not going to be about making Christ known and making much of Christ, him and worshiping and enjoying him and leading others to do the same. I mean, we're wasting our time. That we must be about that. And so I'm thankful for 2015. I mean, we had a lot of amazing things that happened in 2015. We've already talked about one. We planted our first church. We tithed our membership to that first church in faith that it would be a good launching pad for Grace Church and that the Lord would replenish our number and, and, and grow us. And we hired a uh, new pastor, a new student pastor. We made contact in Kazakhstan with an unreached people group and shared the gospel with them. Like all of these many big things that we've been praying about and dreaming about for the last seven or eight years, little, you know, little Seeds of them started happening this year. And so we want to praise God and be thankful for what he did this past year. A lot of big, big things. But we're just scratching the surface of what he wants to do. And so like when I was a, back in the day when I was a runner, there's this little mantra that many of us said, and you probably heard if you played sports or anything, but it's good, better, best, never let it rest. So your good is your better, and your better is your best. All right? It's just this idea of, Always pushing on, always pushing on. And then when I was in, in school getting my uh, Bachelor of Science in management, at the time, I'm sure there's all kinds of great stuff now, but at the time, we were talking a whole lot about being lean and, and, and continuous quality improvement. Like, that's what we want. We're always analyzing. We're always looking. We're always trying to improve. And then you look at the book of Philippians. When Paul wrote that letter to 
um, the church in Philippi. In chapter 3, he says, forgetting what lies behind, now we press on for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And so we've got to press on. We've got to keep on pressing on continually. Giving thanks, yes. But then we press on. We never let it rest. We never grow complacent. Because the moment you do, man, you drift. And so we must continually press on. And so in 2016, we've got some house, housekeeping we've got to do. Right? We've got to review and, and rewrite our bylaws and constitution. That's stuff that will be coming down in, in the months to, to, to come. But, but more pressing than that, that's important, but more pressing than that is just returning to a focus on evangelism. To a focus on outreach. To a focus on worshiping and enjoying God. And leading others to do the exact same thing. And as part of that, we need to define like, like how, do we, how we do that. So that's great. We worship and enjoy God. But, but how do you do that? And being honest, that's where we've struggled for several years. Like, how do we do that? So we've tried to throw out things. Well, we, we do this through um, gospel-centered mission and gospel-centered community and gospel-centered beauty and gospel-centered family. But what does that mean? I mean, that, that's not clear. That doesn't communicate. Like, how do we do that? Worship and enjoy God and leaders do the same. How? What's the do? What, what are we, how do we do that? How do we make disciples that worship and enjoy God and lead others to do the same? How do we do that? And so we've got to clearly define the process by which we do that. And we've always struggled. Always struggled to, to make that clear and concrete and explain how exactly we do that. And so over the years, we've, we've talked about that, and then we've always thrown out like a little emphasis for this year is going to be this, and a little emphasis for this year is going to be this, and a little emphasis for this year is going to be this, and we've got a gazillion little statements, all of which just become some muddy mess, and we're like, well, we know where to worship and enjoy God, but there's like 17 different ways we're told how to do it, so what are we doing? So this year, we want to kind of take stock of all that and just be like, it's all good, gospel-centered mission and community and family and beauty and Every family, bring a family, and all these things, building, planting, and going, they're all good things, but they all just kind of become a jumbled mess together. And so we want to take the opportunity, new year, new opportunity, new start, to kind of set that aside and say, all right, how do we do this? What is the process by which we as a church worship and enjoy God and lead others to do the same? So we spent a lot of time in 2015 talking through this, praying through this, discussing this, gearing up for a chance to, to launch this in 2016. And it doesn't mean that you know, mission and community and family and beauty are, are like we, we don't value those anymore. It's just they don't communicate as quickly and as clearly as a well-defined process can. Of, of what's to do, like that someone can look at and in 30 seconds they can understand, all right, that's, that's, what, that's what Providence is about and here's how they do it. Quickly see it. And so, so here's, here's 
here's the how. Here's how we're going to do it. Not a one-year emphasis. Like, this is our process. This is how we worship and enjoy God and lead others to do the same. It's going to be on the wall out there. It's going to be on the website. It's going to be on all the literature. How do we, as a, wor- as a church, worship and enjoy God and lead others to do the same? Well, here's how. We gather, we grow, we serve, and we go. That's what we do. That's what we do. We gather, we grow, we serve, and we go. That's the process. So number one, we gather for worship. That is fundamental. That is the first thing. Number two, we grow in groups. We grow spiritually. We grow numerically. We do it through groups. Number three, we serve the church and the community. And number four, we go to our neighbors and to the nations. That's our process. That's how we worship and enjoy God and lead others to do the same. We gather, we grow, we serve, and we go. It's clean, it's simple, that's the do. That's, that it answers what we do. We gather for worship, we grow in groups, we serve the church and community, and we go to our neighbors and our nations. That's how we worship and enjoy God and lead others to do the same. And over the next four weeks, we're going to spell that out. We're going to dive like right into that. We're going to spend a series all throughout January talking about that. So next week, we're going to talk about why it's so important and fundamental to everything as a church to gather for worship corporately. Then the next week, we'll talk about growing in groups. Next week, we'll talk about serving. So that's kind of maybe been a hole in our church. Not just serving the community, but serving each other, serving the church. And then the next week, we'll talk about going to our neighbors and to our nation and to the nations. And then in February, we'll jump back into our regular expository, verse-by-verse march through Scripture, and we'll be hitting the book of Luke, and it'll take us a while. So I'm really looking forward to getting back into uh, a series through Scripture, uh, verse-by-verse. But I'm also looking forward to helping us clean up this, like, how do we do this? Just throwing out the clunkiness of all the stuff and just saying, here it is. This is what we do. This is our process. And if something doesn't fit this process, then we don't do it. It may be a good deal, but it's a good deal for somebody else to do. We're going to be simple. We're going to be clean. We're going to be lean. We're going to gather. We're going to grow. We're going to serve. And we're going to go. That's what we do. And so we'll dive into that over the next four weeks. But in the time that we've got left today, all right, if that's the how that we're going to flesh out over the next four weeks, today I want to pull us back up to remind us of the what. Again, I mean, we've already said it probably a dozen times, worship and enjoy God and lead others to do the same. That's what we are about. But, but what does that mean? What, where does that come from? What's the basis for that? And so I want to remind us of that this morning because We can never be reminded of what we're all about, of our vision, of our purpose too much. It's impossible because, as I even said earlier, we have a propensity to drift. All of us do. We have a propensity to drift from Christ, from his word, from our purpose. And so we've got to remain rooted. Like Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7 says this, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus... So walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the, in the faith, 
just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Okay? Walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. And so we've got to stay rooted. So this idea of drifting, like out west, there's tumbleweeds. How many of you have ever run over one? You know, they're just driving around, bam, they'll hit you, and you just bounce off your car, hit the car behind you, you crush them up underneath. They're, they're everywhere. But not every tumbleweed, like, rolls around. When, when, they're, when they're growing, all right, they, they grow, and, and as long as they're connected to their root, they're, they're solid. It's when they get disconnected, when they become unrooted, that they're blown around. If they were able to stay rooted, they wouldn't be blown around. And it's the same for us. We must stay rooted in the word. We must stay glued to our purpose and not go to the left, not go to the right. Stay on track. And so our purpose statement at Providence, works men enjoy God and lead others to do the same, is really a combination of two things. The first part of that is uh, comes from the Westminster Catechism of 1646. All right, it's, when somebody's like catechism, what are you what are you talking about? Let me give a little history lesson real quick. Catechisms or catechesis is the way that the faith was taught for, especially in the first 400 years of the existence of the church, right? And, and what that means is it's it's questions questions and answers. So it it was memorizing. They ask a question and they would give an answer, because nobody had a Bible. There's no printing press. Every single one's got to be copied. And then even if you were to have a Bible, nobody can read it because everyone's illiterate, right? So, so they would teach a question-answer, memorizing, and that's how they taught the faith. They would gather like we're gathering. They'd gather in a place for worship and the public preaching of the Word of God by a God-called pastor. They would gather for that, and then they would work uh, as... Uh, as a church, in memorizing the fundamentals of the faith, catechisms and catechesis. And as Christendom grew and Roman century, you know, the, the Roman Empire spread and, and it became much more political and the, the, the fundamentals of the faith, you know, sometimes were suppressed a little bit. This, um, this idea of catechism kind of uh, fell out of, it, the church drifted away from that. And in the 16th century, with the, with the Reformation and all of that, uh, kind of came back into, um, into favor. And many churches, even down to this day, use catechisms as a way of teaching um, their kids, a way of teaching new believers, a way of teaching new converts. And here at Providence, we don't, we don't follow a, like a formal catechism, but we do have a little catechism deal. Like if your kids come on Wednesday night, they get those little cards. And those cards have a couple things. They've got a scripture memory on them. They've got a verse uh, from a, or a couple of verses from a hymn, an old hymn that maybe we don't sing as much in here, but we want the kids to know the theology of. So they'll get that card. And then on another card, they get a catechism question. And so like in November, the catechism question was, why is being part of a church important? Flip it over. Because a church is the visible people of God, which Jesus says he will grow. Just a simple thing that, that, that John writes as we look at our church and, and look at our kids and what's being emphasized in the curriculum we're going through, what's being emphasized from the pulpit, that sort of thing. And we write a catechism question to help our kids 
get in. So that's what catechism is. And so the Westminster Catechism of 1646, that was something that was written, and there's like 104 or 107 of those questions that people would memorize. But the first one is like the ultimate one. And the first one is this. It says, what is the chief end of man? Like, if you boil it down, what is the chief end of man? And the answer that these guys wrote is that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's why we exist. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And so as we were setting out our purpose here at Providence, I mean, we just piggybacked off of that um, great summary statement of Scripture because the writers of it were completely right. We are to enjoy God. Right? Not, not in the sense that you're Aladdin and God's Robin Williams crazy genie and you rub him and get him to do what you want and get him to do your bidding and so you enjoy him because you can get him to give you good gifts. Right? Not in that sense at all. We need to make sure we understand who we're talking about. We're talking about the God of the universe the creator God, the sovereign God, the all-powerful, omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, eternal God who calls out galaxies and stars by name. He brings them into existence and out of existence of his own good pleasure. Sovereign over all things, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. high and lifted up and holy and glorious beyond our imagination. And so just for that fact of who he is, God is deserving of worship. And then beyond that, what he's done for us in Christ, rescuing us from our sin and giving us forgiveness and life abundant and eternal and joy everlasting. I mean, God deserves worship. He deserves but true worship is not like true worship is not begrudging submission. It is not true worship. True worship is joy-driven delight. That's what worship is. And simply, I say this in starting point all the time. You cannot worship what you don't enjoy. It is an impossibility. You cannot worship what you don't love. And so one of the illustrations that I return to over and over and over and over with this is, is, is the idea of, of an anniversary. So who has an anniversary in January? Got two. Who am I going to pick on? Who am I going to pick on? Who am I going to pick on? So we'll go, we'll go Brian and Nikki over here for a minute. What's your anniversary? The 26th. So on the 26th, if, if Brian brings home flowers or chocolates or whatever Nikki likes, maybe something from Disney World, I know you guys, right? So if Brian brings home something like that, and Nikki asks him, why'd you do that? And he says, it's our anniversary. Like, oh, come on, 
got to bring you something or you'd be mad at me. So here you go. Right? Now, how's she feel? But if he brings it home and he says, and she says, why did you do this? And he says, because I love you. Because I am enamored with you. I am floored by who you are and what you mean to me. And you are my, I mean, that's a huge difference in how, how she feels honored and his own joy. Like one, he doesn't want to do it. He hates doing it. She's not honored. And then the other one, he loves doing it. He, 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 he wants to do it. And she is, she is honored. And that's the same thing with God. It's the exact same thing with God. He's not honored. He's not as greatly glorified by our begrudging submission as he is our delight-driven worship and obedience out of who he is and what he's done and the fact that we are overwhelmed by that. It, it has changed us. And you can't worship God if you don't enjoy him. Well, I'd really rather not, but I guess I kind of got us. You don't zap me with a lightning bolt. That's not worship. That's begrudging submission. And that's not what God's after. He's after our joy in him. Because that's what most glorifies him. What gives God the greatest glory is when we find our supreme joy and meaning and purpose and, and fulfillment and treasure wrapped up in who he is and what he's done. And we we're overwhelmed and build our lives off of that. That's what brings him glory. And, the and is huge, and that's the only thing that will bring us ultimate satisfaction and joy. It's only found in Christ. Nothing else will satisfy ultimately. Ultimately. I'm not saying that non-Christians or, or outside of Christ, you won't ever have a moment of happiness. Right? I think Christians look really, really silly when we say things like, you can't possibly be happy living that way. Because even like Solomon, in, in the book of Ecclesiastes, he tries everything under the sun, trying to find satisfaction. And, and, he, and, he, and he says, hey, some of it was, was fun. I liked doing it. But even in the midst of that, deep down, though he liked it, though he had a good time for a minute, after it was gone, he was just right back to where he was, wondering, what's the purpose in all this? Where's it at? Where's satisfaction? Where's fulfillment? Where's meaning? Where, where, where is this? I still am empty. And so whenever I read Ecclesiastes, we preached through it a couple years ago, I can't help it. Whenever I read through that book, I always picture, and Russell like this, I always picture Solomon as Bono. Got his purple glasses on, right? And so the whole thing, the whole picture of the book of Ecclesiastes is he's, you know, doing all this stuff, and then after every single one, he's, he's singing, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Right? I've climbed highest mountains, I've run through the fields, 
still haven't found it. I've tried this, I've tried this, I've tried this, I've tried this, but I still haven't found it. That's, that's what he's singing. And the reason Solomon, a.k.a. Bono, sings this is because what he's looking for and what we're looking for simply can't be found under the sun apart from God. Okay? Apart from, apart from God, that thirst will not be quenched. You may get a swallow, but it will never be quenched. Only Jesus is able to quench the thirst of our souls. He's the hole in our heart. Um, Ecclesiastes 3, 15, I think, chapter 3. The, God's put eternity into our hearts. He's, Christ is the whole. He's the only thing that will, you will, that will fill that eternity-shaped hole that's in your heart that you've tried with a thousand different God replacements to fill. He's the only thing. I mean, the whole book of Ecclesiastes is Solomon like doing an experiment. I tried this, and I tried this, and I tried this, and none of it worked. I mean, quite literally, chapter 2, he's like, I tried Jack, I tried Jim, I tried all of their friends. And none of it worked. None of it worked. And so 1,500 years ago, there was this guy, we know him as Augustine now. He was the Bishop of Hippo, which is a North African um, city. And he had tried a gazillion different ways to find satisfaction in his life prior to his conversion to Christ. I mean, he was a wild man. And after he came to Christ, he wrote, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless till they rest in you. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless till they rest in you. Until you get to that point, folks, you will be forever singing with Bono. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. You will forever be singing that. Because it's not there. It's found only in Christ. And so the, re the reality that we are often so blind to see is that our, 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 our purpose of worshiping and enjoying God and letting others do the same, right? The reality of that, what it's completely based off of is that, that God's glory and our joy, our ultimate satisfaction, satisfaction and fulfillment and meaning are not two competing realities. That we either have to choose God's greatest glory or our greatest joy. We've got to make a choice that is not the way it's set up. The, the truth, they're not this, they're this. God's greatest glory is found when we find Him to be supreme, over, where we treasure Him above all things. That's where He's greatest glorified and where we find the greatest joy is in that. You're not going to be satisfied in this and this and this and this and this. It's only going to be there. So those things go together. That's why we say worship and enjoy God. He deserves it. He gets the glory. We get fulfillment. We get joy. The things go together. And so that's why, in a lot of ways, as John Piper puts it, the greatest thing Christ died for, in a lot of ways, is to bring us to the enjoyment of God. Because we were made to experience full and lasting happiness from seeing and savoring 
the glory of God. The problem is that sin has separated us from that, and we've all pursued these bankrupt uh, replacements, all right, trying to find fleeting hits of, of joy in our idols. I'm going to type it again, but the gospel of Christ is the good news that at the cost of his son's life, God has done everything necessary to enthrall us with what will make us eternally and ever increasingly happy, namely himself. And so that's why Jesus says, come to me and you will thirst no more. That's why the psalmist writes in Psalm 37, for delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Again, that's not a genie in a bottle. Hey, fake like you like God, and then he'll give you all these other things that you really actually want. You don't want God. You want to use him as a way to get this stuff. No, no, no. Delight yourself in the Lord, and here's what you get. Him. You get him. That's the gift, because he is the greatest desire of our hearts, even when we don't recognize it. He's the whole we're looking for. Christ is the Thing that we all we're all looking for in this place, in this place, in this place. We can't find satisfaction. We can't, you know, we're, we still haven't found what I'm looking for. The desire of our heart is Christ to delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desire of your heart, because He is the desire of our heart. Even when we don't see it, right? Only thing that will satisfy. So that's what worshiping and enjoying God is all about. It's this bringing together of God's glory and our joy. And then out of the overflow of that, of the joy that we have in Christ and the forgiveness of our sins and the canceling of our debt and the satisfaction that we have in knowing God, we then want to lead others to do the same as he's commanded us to do all throughout Scripture. They want to lead them to thirst no more, to search no more, to find rest for their restless hearts, find forgiveness, freedom from shame and guilt and brokenness, mercies new every day. We want to give that away. And so that's what all right, talking about the what. That's what we are trying to ever increasingly do. To more and more worship God and more and more enjoy God. And more and more, like, just get into our gut and recognize that he's our father and he loves us. And then in Christ, he's come after us and he's adopted us through faith into his family. And now as a loving father, he delights in us and sings over us, Zephaniah Chapter 3, he's proud of us. He dotes over us, not because of how awesome we are, but because of how awesome Christ is. And we are united with Christ. And so the righteousness of Christ has been given to us. So when he looks at me, he doesn't see me in my shame and my guilt and my sin and my mess. But he sees the righteousness of Christ in me. Like we were, we were explaining this to the girls, what, Wednesday maybe? This past week? We are reading through Romans chapter 1 as part of our family devotion time we just did. Verses 16 and 17 that day talking about I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God and salvation 
um, and, and that it's the righteousness of God under salvation. Um, and so we were reading through that, and I was trying to explain to the girls this idea of righteousness, and the, the righteous shall live by faith. And so they got these two little gifts. Well, they each got a gift at, at Christmas. Um, that was a bank. And it's got three slots, a slot for savings, a slot for tithing, and a slot for fun money. And so those banks were sitting out, and I was like, Here, here's, here's, what righteous, here's what that's all about, girls. Imagine you've got this bank right here, and this represents all of, of God's, all of Christ's righteousness, all of Christ's holiness, all of Christ's perfect, sinless life. It's, it's, it's inside this bank. And then over here, inside of this bank, is all of your sin and all of your wickedness and all of your rebellion and all of your gross nastiness. And they start adding in snot and, you know, just, just all of your sin, all of your wickedness. And what happens in the gospel is that Jesus comes and he he takes that out of your bank account and he puts that on himself. And he suffers and he dies in your place to pay for all that mess. And then he takes out of his account all of his perfect righteousness. And he comes over and he credits that to you. He drops that into your bank account, shuts the lid, locks the deal. And forever and ever, through faith, that is how God will see you. He will see you as righteous as Christ. And so his love for you will never vacillate because his love for Christ can't vacillate. It won't go up when you're rocking it out. It won't go down when you are falling and stumbling and sinning. It's set secure because it's set in Christ. And it's that hope and that truth and that glory that we want to give away, that we want to leave others to partake of as well. That's what we're here to do, to worship him to enjoy him, to lead others to do the same. To lead others to find what they're searching for, whether they realize it or not. The one who says, come to me and thirst no more. The one who says, and I will give you streams of living water. The one who says, cast your burdens upon me, for I care for you. The one who says, come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The one who truly is the way and the truth and the life. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. And so, man, 2016 is a new year with new opportunities. But it all springs from this. Worshiping, enjoying, and leading others to do the same. Like individually and corporately. And, and some of that's going to flesh out differently in our own lives. I mean, again, at the church, we've got some, we've got some house cleaning to do with bylaw stuff and, and, and rolling out this new process of, 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 of gathering and growing and serving and going. But the basis of that and the goal of all that is the same. That we might more and better worship and enjoy God and lead others to do the same. For the glory of God, for the joy of our own souls, and the joy of those around us. And so that's, that's what we're after. 
This was a new year, new opportunities. The future's bright. God is good. Jesus is Lord. So let's go to work. Happy New Year. Father, we do bless you and thank you on a corporate level and then in every single one of our lives as well for the wonderful things of 2015, for all that you did, for all that you worked and changed and shaped and molded. And we pray, Lord, that 2016 that personally every single one of us, Lord, would, would pursue godliness with a new vigor. Not out of duty, but out of delight. Out of, out of pursuit of, of joy in you. Not in gifts that you give, but in you. And what I pray for our church, Lord, that if we are going to be known for anything, that we would be known as a people of grace. As a people who make much of you, who delight in you, who enjoy you, and with all their heart want others to do the same. And so, Father, help us to help us to do that. Help us to take care of the little things we need to do this year and the big things. And help us to do it all together. Unified. As a church pulling on long ropes connected to a plow in the same direction. No one pulling in a different direction. Everyone together. And so Lord, we, 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 we set ideas, we set plans, but you direct paths. You change plans, Lord. And so and if you want to change, change away. We just want to follow you, and we want to ask you to help us. In the name of Christ.